Well, if their success is driven by the fact that they are not enough, not good enough, that they can only feel good about themselves when they achieve something, they have a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of status, they have constantly have to recreate that. So they actually never feel happy. They may feel temporarily satisfied, but they don't feel the joy that comes from just the gratitude of being alive. How do we become our best and live a life of meaning and purpose? In a world where the constant focus is on fixing what's wrong with us, we want to highlight what is right and good about you to help you live out your best every day. Hi, I'm Eloise Wellings. And I'm Rory Darkins. And this is What's Right Within. Today we are joined by Mark Monchek. Mark is the CEO of the Opportunity Lab. He's an Amazon best-selling author. And he's worked with leaders from the likes of Apple, Google, the New York Times, and the United Nations. In today's episode, we cover what it means to do business and life more consciously. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Eloise. And uh, welcome to the audience. I'm excited to be here with you and very honored to, to share some time with you today. Oh, thank you. We, we're really looking forward to hearing about who you are and what you, what you do. So you're based in the USA? So yes, we are based in New York, but we have worked in many different countries over many different time periods. Uh, right now, we have clients in California and in New York. Over the time, we've had clients in, in the UK, in India, in Hungary, in a variety of, of different places. So my company is called Opportunity Lab, and our mission is to empower conscious leaders to build great companies that make a difference in the world. So we are a consulting firm that focuses on strategy for conscious growth. And we believe that we are at a point in time that businesses have to be the primary drivers of social change, that while government is important in many parts of the world, it is broken and it is not really fulfilling its role to govern. Uh, nonprofits are very important, but still relatively small in terms of the overall scope of the economy. So it's businesses that we interact with every single day. So we make a choice of who to buy from, where to shop, uh, who do we rent from, or what houses do we buy, uh, who do we invest in, who do we work for. All of those are choices that we make every day, and those are interactions primarily with with businesses. Mm. So our, our clients are companies that want to deeply care about their customers, their associates, and the communities they do business in. And they help, they come to us to help them learn how they can develop a sustainable strategy for growth, which means understanding that they are there to serve their customers, their associates, and the communities they live in, as well as to make a profit if that profit is is done consciously and is done through the offering of value to those shareholders. Mm. Amazing. Wow, there's so much there. Um, I, I'm, I'm keen to, to double click under what you mean by conscious, um, conscious leadership and I guess examples of when it's done or conscious business and when it's done right. But before we go there, Mark, um, can you just take us back a little bit and help us to understand how you came to found the Opportunity Lab and, and what's been your journey through the world? So I was born at the intersection of business, psychology, and art. So my father was a physician. 
who later on became a psychiatrist. He originally was a general practitioner, and then he went back and did his residency in psychiatry. Uh, my mother was an artist, and everybody else in my family, my mother's side and my father's side, were entrepreneurs who owned a business. Right. So I didn't know anybody who actually worked for a company. Everybody I knew worked in the family business or owned the family business, or in my father's case, you know, he was a doctor. My mother was an, was an artist. So uh, I say that because I was really influenced by the idea that business is an art as well as a science, that there is an art to growing a business. And a lot of that art has to do with psychology, really understanding the motivation of the people who own the business, the people who work in the business and the people who buy from the business or do business with that business, like suppliers and vendors and, you know, all of that. Mm. Um, so I, I learned psychology uh, starting about from the age of 10. My father decided that I was going to be his acolyte and he was going to teach me Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology and all the different types of, of psychoanalytic theory uh, because he needed somebody to teach that to. And I guess I was 10. I didn't have too much of a choice. At that point. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got old enough to be able to, uh, go, go to go to college, I worked my way through college working in my uncle's business. And they had a toy distributor in Brooklyn. So they uh, bought toys from large toy companies and sold them to mom and pop stores and department stores and flea markets. And so I rode on trucks and I took the, the toys onto the trucks, delivered them off the trucks, and I learned all about the geography of New York City. And also, what does it mean to work in a family business from the ground up? Mm -hmm. So I was always fascinated with why do some businesses succeed and others fail? Why are some, some entrepreneurs very successful but very unhappy? Some mm -hmm. very happy and not successful. Some businesses reach a certain point of success, but they can't go any further. So I became fascinated with the psychology of entrepreneurship and I went to school for uh, psychology and psychiatric social work. I became a master's in, in clinical social work. Then I went on to psychoanalytic training, became a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. But all the while I was interested in this relatively to the psychology of entrepreneurs and their businesses. So I began getting into coaching, training, consulting of small companies and mid-sized companies and larger companies. And I've you know, learned over the years of how important it is to understand the mindset of the people who start a company. Mm. And that mindset must change and grow over time because if it does not grow, the company will not grow if the mindset of the owners do not grow. Mm -hmm. So you'll see companies that grow and they hit a certain plateau. So look at, look at 2008, right? You had companies like um, Bear Stearns, like Lehman Brothers, like AIG, Nokia, uh, Finnish company, was the largest maker of handsets in the world, more than Apple, more than Android phones. But they did not see the internet and social media. And so they were the top of their market in 2008. And by 2010, they were a tiny fraction of themselves. Mm -hmm. Blockbuster owned the video rental market in the United States. They had kind of knocked out most of the mom and pops but they really didn't care about the customers. They were okay with the customers waiting in line for 20, 30 minutes, getting charged $5 for a late fee. And so Reed Hastings, who was a Blockbuster customer, he was, he was in line going, this has got to be something better than this. So he developed Netflix. Originally, Netflix, you had the disc, and you actually nailed the disc in to get another disc. Then he found streaming, and then once he found streaming, you know, Netflix is what it is today. Now you have Amazon Prime and Hulu and all these other streaming channels. But 
all these companies, they, they hit a certain plateau, and unless they can increase their consciousness, their, their ability to serve customers, their ability to attract uh, investors and employees, they will stop, and eventually they might go out of business. Mm. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, you spoke so much then about mindset and how it, crucial it is to success in business. And, I mean, in researching your background, Mark, I came across this video um, where you talked about failure and that too many people are afraid to fail. Um, speak to that for, for a little bit. Well, you know, we, we think about how we are in the world. Uh, when we get to school, you know, that's the first time when we're, uh, we're, we're really domesticated in how we're supposed to think and feel. So imagine, you know, you're, you're in kindergarten or first grade and you begin to realize little by little as you get a little older, but not, not, really that much older, second, third grade, that the person sitting next to you, that little child sitting next to you in that little seat is your competitor <laughs> for a select seat at Harvard University or you know, uh, Tufts University or Princeton or what have you. And you realize there's a grading system. And if I get a, uh, an A plus and you get a B minus, well, I'm supposed to be better than you. But I'm not better than you. Uh, I may not even be smarter than you. What I'm better at is taking the tests or, or, or doing the reports that are required in school, which really in many cases have no relevance to what actually is success in life. So yeah. um, you, your mindset develops very, very early on, and it's a very competitive scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. Only enough money to go around, only enough uh, seats in college to go around, only enough uh, top jobs and top companies to go around. So we, we start becoming competitors with the, the little kids that are sitting around us. And the idea is that the teacher, who's at the head of the classroom in most classrooms, knows the thing that we're supposed to know. We don't know it. We have to learn from outside of us. Mm. So what, what I love about the, the name of your podcast, you know, what's, what's right within, is what you really need to know about the world is already within you. Yeah. And it's your ability to learn about the world from that beauty and that, that curiosity and that uh, passion for learning that's already there with it. Mm. Yeah. I bet you're hitting on pretty much all my favorite subjects. <laughs> um, but one question I have on that is when you talk about a scarcity mindset and the fact that, you, you know, you're kind of competing with, um, the person next to you and there's sort of not enough to go around. What's the opposite of that? And I think, and quite practically, like what, what type of mindset do you hope people hearing this, knowing what you know, would, would actually cultivate, you know, what is that sort of ideal mindset that enables us to pursue our potential? Oh, that's a great question. A complicated question. I'm going to try to give you a very immediate example yeah, so we can take it down from the theoretical into the practical. Mm. So right now in the United States, you know, we have just crossed 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And we also had the highest unemployment uh, in the United States that we've had since I think 2008, 2009. And it looks like it's heading to be even, even worse than that. So we've got this conflict. We, we, we want to keep people safe. And the belief is if we keep people at home and social distancing and wearing masks, that will keep people uh, safe. However, it's not safe if you can't work and if you can't earn a living and if you can't take care of your children. 
uh, and you can't go out and use your body and exercise and breathe fresh air and, and you know, be with the people that you care about. Mm. So companies are now faced with, all right, we, we've, a lot of companies, particularly some of our clients and our own company, mm. have learned how to work successfully at home if, if your business allows that. Yeah. But we'll be opening up some aspects of, of New York City in the next month or so. And there are going to be some people that come back and physically work. And some people are going to be staying working at home because they feel safer at home. Or maybe they even be more productive at home. Yeah. So this, the scarcity competitive mindset says, well, we can't trust people if, they're, if we can't see them, if we can't monitor them in our eyesight. Yeah. But now companies are seeing, and, and one of our largest clients is a national e-commerce retailer, they're seeing that their people, for the most part, are extremely trustworthy. They're actually, in some ways, more productive at home and, and are so grateful to have a job that they are going above and beyond whatever was thought that they could do. Yeah. Wow. So going from that scarcity mindset, where we don't know that we can trust everybody, to the mindset of, you know what, people are actually much more trustworthy than we can imagine. And now we have to try to keep their trust by allowing them to be able to work in the way that makes sense, but also telling them we, you know, we need some people to come back, but maybe we don't need them to come back every single day. Maybe we need them to come back half of a day, half of the week or mm -hmm. what have you. So I think for companies now, number one, they have to show that they actually care about keeping their people safe and keeping their businesses going, keeping their customers going and balancing those things, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do. So the growth mindset is, you know, we can serve all of these different constituencies. We have to be really conscious, they're a conscious business, that we listen to their needs. We try to fulfill as many as we can, and we try to make a business where our customers can be served, our employees can be safe and productive, and we can make a profit in a way that satisfies our constituents and is respectful of the communities we do business in. Mm. So from from what I'm hearing with that, is it does it boil down to an idea that actually it is possible for everyone to be everyone to win? Like everyone can gain or everyone's needs can be met, everyone can get what they need. It's not a you, my success comes at the expense of someone or something. Or can you speak to that? Like yeah, I, I think we can do that, but we have to have a shift of how we're thinking about our responsibility in the larger world. So if you think that you're an individual and that you uh, are competing for the resources and that you should be able to win based on meritocracy, how good you are, how fast you are, how smart you are, uh, and then someone else who maybe wasn't as privileged as you uh, should get a minimum because you can get a maximum. So is it okay for someone to earn a billion dollars a year when there are a billion people on the planet that wake up every morning and don't necessarily know that they will have food to eat that day? Yeah. Um, some people say, yes, it's okay. But uh, I say, well, I don't think it's okay if uh, we do not give those people an, an opportunity to have at least enough of a chance so that they can eat every day and they can feel safe every day and they can have a good education every day. But we've got to change our mindset 
that we are all in this together, we are interdependent. Mm. Because if we're if we don't think that we're interdependent, then it's okay for somebody to be homeless and starving, and okay for somebody to earn an enormous amount of money far more than they need. So I am absolutely for capitalism, but I think capitalism has to be sustainable. And I don't think it's sustainable if you have a huge percentage of people, like in the United States, we have two million people in prison. Yeah, um, that's certainly not sustainable. Uh, and we've got an income inequality where your chances of rising from poverty up to the middle class and beyond is less today than it was 10, 20, or 30 years ago. That's, I don't think that's sustainable. So in theory, we can do it, but we have to figure out how do we, how do we actually do it in the new world right now? Mm. You, you obviously have such a big heart for, for social justice. Where, where did that start? When did that start? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, my mother was uh, one of those parents. Uh, you know, I, I, I idolized my mother. My mother's passed away now five years. But she used to say, you know, you, you should finish all the food on your plate because there are, uh, there are children in here who starve. Mm. And I didn't know what that meant when I was five, but I, I knew by the time I was eight or nine, I knew what that meant. I said, wow, that, just, that doesn't seem right, mm. you know, that there are people who are starving. So my, my parents were very much... Uh, social advocates. You know, my mother escaped the Holocaust when she was 15. Wow. You know, my my father grew up in a ghetto when he when he was um, uh, a college student. There was a Jewish quota. So in New, in the United States in the 1930s, only three percent of doctors could be Jewish. So he actually had to go and study in German in Austria, take a boat for two weeks, so he could actually get to medical school because he wasn't allowed to go in the United States because he was Jewish. So my parents had this high sensitivity to fairness mm -hmm. and to be able to have everybody ha have an opportunity. And so I kind of learned that as, as a little kid and, and grew up with that lens of, of, of looking at the world. Amazing. And on that, I get the sense that you have spent time in a lot of different worlds, <laughs> you know, and you've seen so many, um, so many diverse. different, yeah, diverse mm -hmm. aspects of, of life. What did, what did growing up seeing that teach you that has helped you to navigate um, to where you are today? Well, when I worked for my uncle's company, the, the toy company I was mentioning earlier, I saw that this company was only successful if the people who picked the orders uh, from the warehouse, the people who received the toys from the trucks, put the toys on the shelves, uh, deliver those toys to the, to the customers. If those people weren't honest, if those people didn't do the job right, the people who actually owned the company, my uncles, mm. would never been able to make money. So I, I saw the interdependence of a business literally from the ground floor and, and from you know the, the uh, cockpit of a truck and from the stores that I, I delivered these goods into. And I realized that my uncle's company was successful because they, tra they treated employees well. Employees stayed there for a long time because when they needed something, you know, they were given a loan, they were given time off. You know, there, there was a sense that this was kind of a family. Mm. And while there wasn't total income equality there, there certainly was a, a sense that, um, you know, you were in a larger family of this business and, and this business was going to take care of you as long as you served it well. So that was uh, kind of early education that this, that this could, be, could be done. 
And then when I started working in other businesses, I started saying, well, not every business is like that. And, yeah. and it is possible to actually exploit employees. Although now I think it's, it's becoming much more difficult because, you know, you realize you, you need employees, particularly in COVID-19, like in the warehouse that, that our client has, we have to make sure that that warehouse is so safe that an employee would come in and work there and want to work there, paying them properly, protecting them properly, making sure that if, if they are sick, they're able to go home, get paid for sick time. So these are, you know, these are all things that we're learning as we are evolving what capitalism will have, will be in the next era. Mm. Mark, um, you said something earlier that I really want to loop back to if we can, and that was about, learning the difference between um, entrepreneurs who develop a mindset to be successful, but can also um, that tension between what it takes to be successful and what it takes, but it can kind of cost you your well-being, or it can, how do you have both? And like, you know, my research has specifically looked at the link between well-being and performance. Like how do we actually become our best in a way that is fulfilling and life-giving and, and helps us to thrive in every element of our well-being from from your experience what do you think it takes for someone to achieve all that they're capable of in a meaningful way and have great well-being well first of all you have to have a belief that you can actually perform well be successful and be happy mm. <laughs> so it starts with belief it starts with a, a fundamental I think everything we do starts with what we believe. And a lot of those beliefs are unconscious that we're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you have to work hard, right? That was uh, very important. Work hard. Now working hard came from the idea when we, when we worked in the fields and when, when we worked on the railroads, there was hard physical work. Mm -hmm. So in this, idea of working hard it meant you have to sacrifice you have to suffer mm. so that if you worked hard and you were successful you had to struggle you had to sacrifice you had to give something in order to get something mm. this this is a belief in scarcity that you have to um somehow suffer in order to get uh this top performance or in order to be it's successful risk of reward and, yeah and, and you know some of the most successful people are the most unhappy Mm. so and i think the, the belief is you know for just on that for a second sorry to cut you off but just on that i think it's so important what is it that um about people who achieve great success and are extremely unhappy like what is getting in the way for them um i'd, I'd love to hear your thought on that well if their success is driven by the fact that they are not enough, not good enough, that they can only feel good about themselves when they achieve something. They have a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of status. They have constantly have to recreate that. Mm -hmm. So they actually never feel happy. They may feel temporarily satisfied, but they don't feel the joy that comes from just the gratitude of being alive. They, mm -hmm. they have a temporary satisfaction that they achieve something. Mm -hmm. And that something continues to increase yeah. Because if you achieved a level of wealth, you're made a hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, if you are supposedly capable, you should make one hundred fifty thousand. And when you get one hundred fifty thousand, you should make two hundred thousand. Mm. 
Mm. You have one car, you should have two cars. You should have one house and a country house and a third vacation house. And, <laughs> um, because you're constantly trying to, to rationalize your existence with something outside of yourself. Yes. And I mean, it's so um, it's so obvious when it comes to to, to Minecraft in sport, uh, where you know there, there's a saying that you're only as good as your last race. And I actually heard it on the Last Dance the other night when I was watching Michael Jordan, and they said it, and I was like, wow, it's it, but it has so much to do with identity and how you see yourself outside of what you do, um, and how much val how much you value yourself um, regardless of how successful you are. Okay. So if you saw the last dance, which, which I haven't seen, but I've, I've listened to a few podcasts uh, recently about Michael Jordan. So his father always favored his brother, Larry, mm. and he grew up starved for his father's attention and, and, mm. and affection. And it wasn't until he, I don't know, won three, you know, three championships in a row that he finally started to get his father's attention. His father always wanted him to play baseball. Mm. So, you know, his father was murdered in, I think, 93 or something, and a, a terrific murder. That was a, incredibly devastating for Michael Jordan. Mm. So after his first three-peat, he decided that he was going to actually go into baseball. He was a very good baseball player as a young man, and he did it because that's what his father wanted him to do. And he didn't – he wasn't very successful as a baseball player. Then when he came back and – had three more championships, you know, after he uh, retired from his short career in baseball. But the reason I'm bringing up Michael Jordan is I don't think Michael ever felt that he could really love himself without that next achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that was a, kind of a sad thing to hear about. It is. And it's such a tension. And, you know, as Eloise alluded to, in the world that, you know, we're sort of, we spend a lot of time with, you know, high-performing athletes and, and people high-performing in other spheres. And I think it, this, is, this is the absolute heart of, I, I think it's the root of most of the challenges that people end up experiencing through pursuing their potential is that when your identity becomes um, wrapped or, or, you know, um, wrapped up in your success or, um, or lack of um, in what you do, Yes, that can actually drive performance to a, to a large degree, as we see with Michael Jordan. You know, he's so much of uh, watching that series. I could see how his drive to prove that he was the best was, it, it fueled him and it actually did help him perform in many ways. Yet, I, you know, it, that comes at such a cost. And ultimately that cost is you cannot experience fulfillment if, you know, you put joy on the other side of your achievements. You know, if, if you're pursuing, if you're pursuing um, the next, you know, goal or achievement and, and your sense of well-being and joy, you've kind of put beyond those goalposts. Like when I achieve that, then I can feel good. Mm. That's such a trap, but it kind of works to a degree as well. And so from your experience, Mark, could you speak to that? Like what if, if, if a lack of, um, feeling enough or, or feeling yeah, good enough or worthy is is quite a um, a negative driver in many ways what what's the alternative like how can people practically if they identify with actually I think I'm chasing more and more success um, to, to feel better about myself like 
surely the answer is not to not pursue what you're capable of. Mm. What's the healthy pursuit? Uh, that's a great question. I think there are more and more role models of people who are passionate about what they're doing and they learn how to get into flow, you know, which is, which is a state where you are effortlessly moving forward through creativity and they love that state of flow and they're able to perform at incredibly higher levels. Mm. So let's uh, let's take a couple of examples. So you you may have seen the movie Free Solo, yeah. yes, uh, about uh, Alex Honnold, right? Yeah. So Alex at the beginning of the movie it, is a very troubled young man. You know, comes from a very troubled family, and his father, I think, committed suicide when he was relatively young. Uh, his mother told him that everything he did had to be uh, perfect, and he had to mm. constantly get better and better and better. So when you see him at the beginning, he's a very socially awkward kid. He's driven to be able to justify his existence by climbing. And then, you know, when he gets to the point where he's ready to climb uh, El Capitan, he actually does two things which are very unusual. And I don't think, besides the fact that nobody has ever free soloed El Capitan before, I don't think (laughs) anybody even thought they could do it. If you haven't but, watched it, you're going to watch yeah. it if you're listening. This uh, is yeah, yeah. And it, it, is, it is quite extraordinary. You probably have to watch it more than once to actually truly understand uh, yes. what this guy is about. So most of the, the free solo climbers do not have relationships because their girlfriends or boyfriends, mostly men, you know, girlfriends, don't want to see somebody who is eventually going to die. Yeah. And they just can't have an, an encumbrance. They can't have somebody that they're looking after. But Alex actually has this beautiful relationship with Sonny who really supports him. Mm-hmm. And he, he really changes from a real loner and a real individualist to a real member of the community. The second thing is he allowed his friends, Jimmy Chin and, and, and Jimmy Chin's uh, partner and all these other climbers to film him yeah. while he is scaling El Capitan, which most climbers would never want that because they would feel I'm self-conscious. I got to, I got to worry about looking at them and, and, and they filmed him in such a way that he, he was able to actually get up there. And yet he had the greatest enjoyment because he shared his success with his friends. And then when he got up there and at the very end, you kind of think, you know, maybe he's going to, maybe he's going to stop mm-hmm. doing these things because he actually wants to live. Cause some of most of his climbers who were, the greatest climbers in the world have died because mm. they just couldn't stop. Yeah, mm. they couldn't quit while they were ahead. And I hope Alex does that because I, I just think he's a very humble, beautiful mm. soul. And I think he maybe he learned that he actually can have that achievement and he can feel good about himself without having to do the next one. I, I hope that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, I fi- I finished that movie and I thought what an incredible expression of vulnerability in terms of, as you say, allowing the cameras to follow his journey to achieve this huge challenge that he had his heart set on. Uh, and, and, you know, the vulnerability expressed and the exposed like the exposure that he had and i mean when he finally achieved it the emotion as well because he he, up to that point pretty much showed no absolutely no emotion you know and then finally getting to the top i've just full spoiler alert um but finally (laughs) getting to the top he just allowed himself to to let go and allow himself to enjoy 
mm. um, find joy in that in that moment. And that, and, and there, you get that. There, there was so much beauty in the camaraderie between all the people that helped him do mm. this, mm. right? Yeah. So go ahead, Rory. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, that's that's great. I think it's such a great example you use because you know when we, we were talking about the cost of being driven by you know not feeling enough but that that can actually help you achieve certain things um and and what you're getting at i think and correct me or push back if you if, if it's not quite right but i think what you're getting at is the fact that we can actually move beyond that it's not that you know through as we mature as we grow as we as we learn about ourselves and about um life we can actually be what drives us can change so we may start out being driven by looking for approval or or finding our worth and our achievements but in along the journey somewhere that can actually shift and be driven by something far greater which is you know more about um exploring what's truly possible and doing it with others like i i think the the story you shared there is is such a great example of mm. um the you know what changes when it's suddenly about more than yourself mm. you know because searching trying to be the best so that you feel enough is all about you right like that's all about you trying to, to satisfy that sort of deprivation need but when you start being driven by how you can contribute to people in the world around you suddenly there's a greater purpose in what you do that's beyond yourself and the research is pretty clear about you actually do spend more time in a flow state when there's greater purpose mm. to why you're doing what you're doing. And so I guess our hope for the audience is that, you know, it, it's not, there's not something wrong with you if you're driven by wanting to achieve and feel good about that, but there's actually more out there for you as well. There's mm. more ahead and that, when you start to find the bigger purpose to what you're doing and what you love to do, like if you're passionate about something and that passion can take on a purpose beyond yourself, suddenly, you know, there's, some, there's, yeah, there's this magic. It's that liberating. There, eh? Yeah. And I mean, that that's just reminding me of what happened to Michael Jordan because they, they, they ended up saying to him, you can pass the ball to someone else. <laughs> Other people can shoot and score. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not even finished the series yet. So, um, but that was episode four. I think that, you know, they discussed the fact that um, he, there was a point in his career where he did start to try and make uh, everyone around the team better players um, just because of who he was. And so it went from just being about him to having this greater purpose of, mm -hmm. um, being part of a team and and helping people become um, their best and reach their full potential as well. And he, found, I'm sure he must have found so much purpose and and freedom in that for himself and made him, you know, even more an incredible player. Mm. So, Mark, bringing this back to the field you're working in now, what is your hope for the the businesses and the clients that you work with and and the world at large? Like, what is your hope? humanity <laughs> uh well staying with it with um working in conscious business which is which is our primary focus mm -hmm. right now at the opportunity lab it's really proving that businesses can deeply care about their customers their associates and the communities they do business in 
and that will allow them to make a profit sustainably over time and be more successful because they realize the interdependency between the business, the associates, the customers, the communities, and that, that we can form a capitalism that actually is a conscious, caring, collaborative uh, way of thinking, not a scarce, competitive, you know, winner-take-all uh, mentality. And I'm hoping that COVID-19 uh, and, and all of the disruption it's caused will show that the companies that really truly care about their, their people, their customers, and their communities will rise and survive and thrive. And maybe those companies that have not been able to do that will, uh, will, will show that that model is no longer sustainable. I, I certainly don't hope that anybody fails. Mm. I hope everybody succeeds. Uh, I, I do believe that the companies that actually think about themselves as an interdependent agent in the world will do better under these very difficult circumstances. Mm. And I'm seeing some great signs of hope with, uh, you know, with our clients and with the communities that we are operating in. Mm. So I'm, I'm very hopeful, but it's, it's choices that we have to make every day. So you know, mm. people say, well, what do you think is going to happen? I said, well, it depends what we do. It depends yeah. what we, we decided is going to happen. It's not like, I think we think that there's this, there's the government. Oh, uh, what is the government going to do? Well, guess what? We are the government. We elect <laughs> the politicians, you know, like, have you ever been to a community board meeting? Have you ever been to, uh, you know, your local council person's office? You know, so we are the government. The yeah. government is, is, is not only the people who are elected, but it's the choices that we make every day, whether it be political choices about voting and participation or whether it's going to be the vote of who do we work for, who do we buy from, who do we invest in. Mm. We, we can vote many, many times every single day. So it's our opportunity to decide what world do we want to live in. Yeah, that's, that's powerful about, well, powerful quite literally in that we have the power to choose and to influence the world that mm -hmm. we live in mm -hmm. and, and certainly our own experience of, of that. Um, Mark, as we sort of lead towards, towards wrapping up, I, um, I have a one sort of one last kind of quick hit question for you. If someone's listening to this and they're, they're really resonating with what, they're, with what you're saying about you know, interdependence and, and how we can win with this sort of relationship-based approach as opposed to a kind of winner-takes-all scarcity approach, what are some practical steps that people can take in order to, to explore that further and, and start to shift their own mindset? Well, I wrote a book about this in 2017 called Culture of Opportunity, How to Grow Your Business in an Age of Disruption. So in that book, there is a step-by-step -step process that we have developed over the years for our clients and that are pretty easy to use for anybody who is in a business uh, or wants to start a business. So you can go to Amazon and get it on Kindle or get the print version. Uh, you can go to our website, oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. We have quite a number of podcasts, blogs, uh, all kinds of suggestions in terms of how people can start. It depends on you know, whether you're, you're starting a new business, you're in an existing business, whether you're working for somebody or whether you're owning the business. You know, there's a lot, a lot of different examples. But I think educating yourself on examples of companies that are doing this kind of, of conscious business is, is a very, very good start. Yeah, awesome. Mm -hmm. And how do you, um, I know I said last question, but there's one more. Um, <laughs> how do you, are there any practical things that you yourself do, you know, on a daily or a weekly basis to help 
um, show up in the world as your best and, and kind of keep that perspective and reinforce the beliefs that um, really serve serve you and your mission? Uh, yes, love that question. Good, good question to end on. Uh, I've stopped treating my body as a machine. Mm. Wow. So, you know, when I, when I grew up as an athlete, so I was a baseball player, played basketball, played football. You uh, left a little bit of hockey. That wasn't and, in your you know, bio. Um, yeah, but I, I, when I when I was uh, 14, I realized that my athletic career was great up to 14, but that was that was about it. I was going to quit while I was ahead. I retired so, from rugby when I was seven. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we were growing up as boys, we were taught that um, we should sacrifice everything to win. So mm. there was no thought of ever not playing because you were injured. If you were injured, as long as you could walk, you'd be on the field. If you were bleeding, if you had a concussion that was irrelevant, pain was irrelevant, you should actually use your body as, as a machine or a weapon. Yeah. And, you know, that's a very, very dangerous mindset to put into children's heads. Really, it is. So, yeah. you know, and so I learned to live with pain. And as I, I got older and got more conscious, I realized, you know, my body is a, is a sacred part of who I am, as is my mind. And I need to care for it, you know, just mm -hmm. like you would care for an infant growing, you know, as it's growing. So my practice is, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I, I don't sleep with any screens, uh, I keep my mobile phone away from my bed. Uh, I have a very dark room. I sleep with eye shades to try to keep all the ambient light out so I can get a good night's sleep. I try to go to sleep early enough so I can get at least seven hours of sleep. Right. Uh, I get up in the morning and when I'm awake enough to know who I am, what day it is, what time it is, then I meditate for 20 minutes in the morning. Uh, I have a beautiful journal called the five minute journal. And every morning in that journal, I write what are the three things I'm most grateful for that day, what are the three things I want to make my day amazing, and what is the one concept that I want to resonate with that day. Mm. And at the end of the day, I go back and reflect what were the three most amazing things that happened that day. Because you know, our, our life is so fast and so jam-packed with stimuli. We do and see more things in one year than our great grandparents did in a lifetime. Yeah. In yeah. a lifetime. Yeah. So let's just it, pause it, and let that say good. Our brains uh, are, are not really evolved for that amount of massive simulation. So mm -hmm. the meditation twice a day is really essential. And then the journaling at the end of the day, I reflect on. So tell me, let me think about my day. So you mm -hmm. can actually really be grateful for the things that happened that day. You can be reflective of things you wish you do differently, appreciative of the people, you know, that you interacted with. Um, and then I do exercise. I try to exercise five, six times a week indoors. And then I try to get out and bike. You know, I, I, my biking is my local way of commuting. So mm -hmm. I was out on my bike today and getting, you know, your body is meant to move, yeah. to, mm -hmm. to move and, and to be Amen. free, whatever, whatever, whatever form that is in for you. So uh, it, it's really a practice of using my body, quieting my mind, being aware of the gratitude I have, and then being planful about what I want to do every day. Yeah, wow, that's that. that's inspiring. That's yeah. I mean, to have the discipline to do that twice a day too is 
it's quite something and and i love that you start with a gratitude piece and and then reflect on it at the end of the the day that's that's awesome yeah do you, do you do you brush your teeth in the morning yes do you do you need to be motivated to do it <laughs> you're talking yeah. the power of habit yeah the power of habit no, no, but the, no but the, the reason is the reason i ask you that is that and initially you motivate yourself to do something that hasn't become essential to your being, mm. right? So when, if I walk out of the house in the morning without meditating, it's the same feeling that if I were to walk out without brushing my teeth, my mind feels dirty. Yeah. It, it, it feels unscrubbed. <laughs> it feels like just a little bit confused. Yeah. So uh, once you realize what meditation, exercise, journaling, in various other practices can do you don't miss them you don't need to be motivated to do them. i don't i don't feel like i have discipline i just do the things that, that that i love to do because i've learned to love to do them but it takes the discipline is, is to get into the habit once you get the habit then it's it just becomes part of what makes life great to right. me anyway that's that's the way i think about it yeah i love that it's, it is so inspiring and so like any any one of us can choose to do that mm. anytime right like we can we can sit down tonight or wake up in the morning and choose to take some time to um bring ourselves into the present moment and to to be still and to to pay attention to what we're grateful for and you know, it's such a huge part of what we're doing with what's right with that with the app and then also this this podcast is about you know it's, it's about identifying what's right within you, but it's also bringing that lens to the world around you and actually starting to notice and appreciate what's right in the world mm. in a world that is, is very focused on what's wrong. Mm. And um, to your point about how much stimulus there is in the world, we have to, we have to choose which, what stimulus we're going to let in and what we're going to filter out. And the mind does that naturally it does that subconsciously but we can actually train that filter and that's the power of, of gratitude you know like if you actually take the time to practice gratitude it becomes just a part of your filtering system where you start to automatically notice the good mm -hmm. as opposed to um, let that pass through the filter because the brain is so wired to find what's wrong mm -hmm. the threats because it can keep it safe keep you safe but in doing so, you can actually miss all the good. And so I think that's why we do need to train our, our attention to actually notice and, and build on what's right so that we can in, improve our own internal experience. But then also, you know, I, it sounds to me as well like that actually helps you build that sort of, um, I guess, the opposite of a scarcity mindset. If you're, if you're always seeing what's wrong, you're you're thinking there's lack there's threat whereas if you're training gratitude and building this notice noticing and appreciating what's right then you're actually in a position to spot opportunities mm. and to feel more optimistic you know gratitude is how we train optimism right so yeah um so powerful what you what you shared there mark and and thank you for that um are you ready for rory's rap <laughs> yes uh, if you're if you think I'm ready, I'm ready. <laughs> the question is, am I ready? Am I ready? <laughs> you're ready. Firstly, just thank you so much for um, for sharing um, about yourself and what you do. It's it's 
been a privilege to really hear what makes you who you are. And I think some themes that that came through really strongly from our conversation with you is the importance, firstly, the importance of mindset and our beliefs, right? And And I think, you know, you really exemplify what is possible when you intentionally build a belief system that serves you in the world right and and take take responsibility for um for your own mindset and your own beliefs everything that you talk about i think comes back to this idea of interdependence that we are part of something far bigger than us but Mm. we're an important part and so the opportunity is to to really play our part in the way that we're uniquely crafted to to be able to play for the good of ourselves and others you know it's not it's not an either or it's not sacrifice myself for others or sacrifice others for myself it's actually we can all win so to speak Mm. if we recognize what we uniquely have to contribute and if we can um, really um, in everything we do with the world around us we do so with with care and deep regard for the people that are in, and that are affected by what we do. And so where that applies to business, as, as you have explained, and even into sport with, you know, what drives you to and your and how you compete and and in relationships, I think, you know, everything that you've you've communicated with us just really speaks to the the great opportunities that exist within us and around us to to contribute for the good of all and mm. what's more what's more inspiring than that you know like the the fact that we actually have uh, we can play our part in, in making yeah. a better world you know and it sounds cliche but I think your experiences and your perspectives and stories really show that it's not cliche mm. it's like it's, it's a way of life. It's a way of life and it's available regardless of where where we come from. Mm. You know, like you you said growing up how how influential seeing the adversity that your family encountered, um, how that actually shaped your view of humanity and of, of how business could be. I just think, you know, I'm inspired about um, about what's possible with with just intentionally building that mindset of I'm going to be conscious about how I can play I can fully actualize who I am for the good of of the people in the world around me and and in every choice we have choice at every step Mm. and and I think from your daily practice around gratitude to your you know and mindfulness and how you treat your body and how you view um, people that you interact with in every moment we have choice to be uh, to to act in a way that serves others and honors others and in doing so um, enables us to flourish so thank you for um for letting us in on on yeah. that and yeah thanks mark thank you eloise thank you rory uh love being on the show i love what you're doing with the podcast i think it's so important to find people in the world that are that are doing beautiful things in a beautiful way and making the world a better place i love the app you're building i think it's so important to have a tool that's simple that can help help us understand what's going on inside of us quickly and easily. So uh, you're examples to me of uh, of making the world a better place with everything you're doing. So thanks, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, to be with you. Oh, thank thanks you, Mark. so much. Appreciate you and um, have a have a good evening. I know it's getting late over there, so get that seven hours sleep.